leader in baseball, champion for inclusion, ambassador for diversity and social responsibility. Our guest today is the main advocate for the latest Major League Baseball groundbreaking change from the disabled list to the injured list, and my personal hero, Billy Bean. All Inclusive, a podcast on inclusion, innovation, and social justice with Jay Ruderman. Hi, and welcome to All Inclusive. I'm your host, Jay Ruderman. It's wonderful to be joined today by Billy Bean, the Vice President and Special Assistant to the Commissioner for Major League Baseball, Rob Manford. He is also the Vice President for Social Responsibility and Inclusion at Major League Baseball. Mr. Bean handles anti-bullying efforts and continues to develop strategies with a focus on the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. From 1987 to 1995, Mr. Bean played for the Detroit Tigers, Los Angeles Dodgers, and the San Diego Padres. Welcome, Billy, and thank you for joining me today. Tell us a little bit about who you are, how you got started in Major League Baseball as a player, and your personal journey. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate all the work that uh, you and your foundation do. Uh, my name is uh, Billy Bean, and I'm currently Vice President and Special Assistant to Commissioner Rob Manfred of Major League Baseball. But at one time, I was just a little leaguer at seven years old, uh, introduced to baseball, and was able to navigate my way somehow all the way through high school and got offers to play in college, which I thought would be the peak of my baseball career, and then got drafted a couple times and found my way. I was in the big leagues before my 22nd birthday and played six years in the major leagues. And during that time, I was really struggling with an internal dialogue that I did not really understand at the time. I, I grew up in a very conservative uh, military household. Uh, my dad and my stepfather, the only father I've ever known, was in the Marine Corps and was a, a police officer. Um, I was the oldest of six kids and I think made to be the example for my siblings and five boys and him wanting us to be tough and men. And, and so every image or conversation that I heard around the subject that I was struggling with, and that was my sexual orientation, I wasn't sure what it meant to be gay. I'd never talked to anybody that was. I never, my parents never introduced me to someone who said that you know, they were, or I, I never saw anybody on TV that I could relate to. And it wasn't until I actually met somebody that um, it was in my fourth year in the major leagues that I started to f understand that I was in a really difficult spot. The one thing that I think a lot of people who have never, you know, lived or walked through that journey of trying to understand your sexual orientation in a world that is not supportive of being LGBT. That was in the 80s and early 90s. I just thought if I never did it, it wasn't, wouldn't be true. What happened was uh, I tried to live a double life and I was living secretively and my partner died of HIV-related causes uh, on the night before what was to be my last season in the majors. And I was devastated uh, by the great loss of my partner, my only person I ever was honest with, really in the whole world at that time. I kind of alienated myself. I didn't have the confidence to tell my family I loved my parents, but I believed everything my dad ever said about gay people, and I thought that he would think that about me, and I did not want to ever have that look into his eyes. And I knew I would disappoint my mother, and it just seemed easier to be away from them 
and remain the golden child who played in the big leagues and, and just not see them anymore. I wanted to express my condolences for the loss of your partner at the time and also for the separation from your family, which I'm sure was an excruciating time for you and probably for them. And the whole journey that you went through, which was so important, but I'm sure an extremely difficult journey. You know, I held up my responsibility. I finished my last year, but I knew inside that I wasn't going to stick around. I, I gave up on myself. I gave up on my family. I walked away from baseball, and I didn't have a plan B for a career or a job. Three years later, the person that was doing a nothing story about a Miami Beach restaurant had done her homework, and she knew who I was. She knew I had started to see somebody, and, and she wanted to to write the truth. And I didn't think anybody would care. I I'd just recently told my parents, this was two and a half years after like my last game. Next thing I know, it was on the front page of the New York Times and I was on national television. And, and it was because baseball had never had that connection. Um, I think if we're talking about diversity, what was comfortable for athletes in the sports world was people of color. And that's it. For someone like uh, Sandy Koufax, I remember you know, I was raised in a religious environment at home, but people saying he's Jewish, you know, like that was like in a way that was enamored by the, his own community because they hadn't seen as many images of their own, you know what I mean? And he was this amazing, you know, he's on Mount Rushmore of greatness. So, and, and so when people start to see something that they can align in, um, it creates interest. And, and there was just no representation for people in the LGBT community, even in sports. I didn't understand why people thought it was interesting. I was just afraid that I would be humiliated because I made some really bad choices. I didn't go to my partner's funeral because I had a game that day. I couldn't figure out a way to not go to the park. I felt devastated by some of those choices. I lied to my family for years. I just felt like it would be better if I just started over somewhere. And so this attention about that started to bring back all of that stuff that I had sort of hidden away. Like I just went off the grid after being a player where every single day they know where you are. And I learned a very quick lesson that there's a lot of people out there that need some leadership. And I needed to stop feeling sorry for myself and get over it. And and I met, I was introduced by uh, someone in the LGBT community to uh, Judy Shepard, who is Matthew Shepard's mother. Um, and it was just about not even a year after he was murdered in Laramie, Wyoming. She just, you know, was so influential in my life telling, you know, I told her, I said, I, I just don't know even what to say, how sorry I am for what happened to you and your family and to Matthew. And, and, and you know, she was like, Matthew would have been so excited to meet you. You would have been a hero to him. And I, I felt unworthy of something like that being said to me and asked her, like, what do I do? She was thrust into the same environment kind of as a, as a role model for people, not of her own doing. And she could have easily said no and mourned the loss of her son. But she decided to get out there and be the face of a conversation. And she's amazing. And, and uh, I was inspired by that. And so I just stopped lying about myself. And I started saying yes to things that I was certain I would not know anything about or be influential or an influencer of, in any capacity. And over time, I started to find my way and get involved in, and bullying prevention really started to speak to me that I felt I could, I was young enough to be out there with kids and, and 
encourage them to participate. That was more sort of like what I did to sort of heal my past. It wasn't a vocation. It was just uh, somewhere, every, you know, everywhere I could get connected and worked in uh, around some people that uh, started some foundations that were really amazing. It's my understanding that you are one of the only professional baseball players from the MLB who has come out as, right. as being gay. Right. How did you go from this traumatic time in your life where you decide you couldn't reconcile being gay and being in MLB to coming back to MLB? Right. So exactly what you said, there's been two players in 150 year history that have played in the major league player named Glenn Burke and myself, which speaks to the culture, you know, that young male athletes face, you know, in in this type of situation. So I was away from baseball for well over 10 years. I did not think even up until 2013 that a person that was gay would ever have a place in baseball. I literally was perpetuating that. But I do think that the life experience that I had in that interim prepared me for a job that there was no definition for. And I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for a few people that work in our labor relations department in this office that had the vision to say, we have to expand this conversation about fostering a more inclusive environment, a culture, workplace, messaging in the stadiums, you know, what we deem as funny. And for years and years, perpetuating stereotypes against women, perpetuating stereotypes against certain religious faiths, perpetuating stereotypes definitely against the LGBT community. I literally was on working out on the West Coast, and I got a call that asked me to, if I would be interested in having a conversation. They wanted to ask me a few questions, and I did not know what the content of that was about. But Paul Mifsud, who's a labor attorney who's been here uh, since 2000, just an amazing inspiration in my career now, when he hung up, he said, Billy, this this conversation is probably 12 or 13 years late, which really was like, uh, what does that mean? You know, because I I wrote a book in 2004 and I took the initiative and the liberty of challenging baseball to take this opportunity to be better. And so it's been an interesting navigation. I have to say, I think that as a former player in this position and understanding and taking advantage of the infrastructure that had been built by others here long before me, I took this and ran with it because I saw this might be the one chance my community gets and I was going to lift up that conversation, that diversity conversation, and say the only reason we're having this one is because of those conversations, and we are going to take advantage of that. And so I tried to find that bridge with the players. The first thing I wanted them to know was this is not about me finding out who is what or what your personal life or that's none of my business. My job here is to help you understand the expectations and how that is changing in our Uh, in the baseball world for every stakeholder in our clubhouse, in our front offices, for those we're pursuing for work and, uh, and the messaging for every fan that walks through that turnstile to feel connected and not alienated. What is your day-to-day? You do a lot of traveling. You're, you're visiting right. the different uh, major league parks around the country. You're speaking players to management. What's the core of your full-time position? I think Paul Missed came up with the title Ambassador for Inclusion. Dan Halem, who is our deputy commissioner now and and another amazing person to work for because he wants baseball to be better. He sent me to speak to the general managers at the annual GM meetings a few months into my first year here. And that really changed the game for what my job became about. It, It turned out that I had played with or against, 
I think 26 or seven of the of managers in baseball at that time in 2014. And I had deeper relationships than I remembered. You know, there is a bond that of players that played. And I think once people started to hear that I wasn't here to woe is me, Billy Bean story, it was about everyone else. A light went on and people started to see this is good for us. This is this could be good. And for the first time, a former player was standing up in front of players talking about something sensitive, but having come through the other side, that doesn't mean everybody's on board with inclusion and equality and equity in the workplace. You have to work for that. And why this conversation today is important, because from 70 years ago, when Jackie Robinson ran on the field in Brooklyn in, in you know April 15, 1947, to the 60s civil rights movement of Willie Mays and Frank Robinson and Hank Aaron and our amazing heroes of that era, to my little conversation and expanding a conversation and or our efforts to bring women into highest level positions and operations and ownership to a conversation about being inclusive of people living with disabilities or hiring uh, active U.S. Armed Forces members into high-level positions and not only presuming the diversity conversation in a, in a limited conversation, you know, like pursuing the best, brightest, broadest candidates regardless of the package that we walk into the room in. It's about what is your skill set? And how can you be the best at this job? And that conversation, it takes time to earn those moments. And and I've learned by being invited to all 30 clubs, in a long answer to your question, that I have never, there's never been a mandate from this office that they have to listen to Billy Bean. I asked Commissioner Manfred to make sure that my job was about invitation. And so I feel like the onus is on me to be an example that, the clubs want. You're listening to All Inclusive with Jay Ruderman. You can learn more, view the show notes and transcripts at rudermanfoundation.org slash allinclusive. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you are listening. Well, I have to give a lot of credit to Major League Baseball they have brought you into this position that they have valued inclusion. And I think I remember hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, that more Americans attend a baseball game than any other sporting event in person during a year. Yes. So it's a hugely impactful part of our society. And to have someone dedicated to talking about inclusion in parts of our society that, that can be improved upon and, and to understand the leadership role that celebrities and young, young athletes have is hugely important. Do you know, are other major league sports in this country, are they following the lead of uh, major league baseball? I think every league understands the importance of broadening its, its fan base. And sharing your values is the best way to grow your your business. And because nowadays people do want to know what you stand for. You got to be good. And I, I also think that the, the beauty of sports and why it is starting to elevate in, it, in its importance is we, it's almost as if we are in public service because consumers are willing to uh, enjoy entertainment and stream it on their timeline. But sports... That live time, no tried and true sports fan is willing to wait to watch a World Series game on tape delay. You know what I mean? We got to know. We got to know now. And so I think that is drawing more attention to us. It may not be as for as long, but we have a chance to be important and be meaningful 
And I think that conversation now has gone outside the white lines, and we have to show what we stand for within the community as a national messaging, you know, with our advertising or the companies that we choose to work with. So I want to talk about the disability community because we know from statistics based on the United States Department of Labor or the United Nations, um, U.S. Census, that 20% of our population has some form of a disability. It makes it the largest minority group in the world and the poorest minority group in the world. The Ruderman Family Foundation has been behind disability rights for decades, but a few years back, we started to work on self-advocacy and bringing in people with and without disabilities to empower them to become better advocates for disability rights. And, and this group was called Link 20, to link them to the rest of the population, and they're 20% of the population. And I know that they reached out to Major League Baseball and to you to talk about the disabled list. For those non-baseball fans who are listening, when player is is hurt and unable to play, was put on the disabled list, and and they came to you and said, you know, the correct term should be an injured list because they're injured and they're not permanently disabled, and we're empowered as a disability community by being identified as being people with a disability. Can you just talk about that from your end um, and how that happened? Because our experience as a foundation and and I think the the disability advocacy part of our society, usually change happens over a long period of time. (laughs) And this happened really quickly. So the interesting part of my job is that I get a lot of correspondence for a wide uh, range of topics that are mostly off the field. What was unique about the outreach from Link 20 was that I had been thinking about this for a long time. And baseball is under a lot of scrutiny for changes to game tempo, roster size. The reason a list like this is important is because these players are putting themselves out there as 100% every night. And when injuries happen, you need to replace that player so the team has enough people to play a game. And this is real life. It's work and it's, you know, it's job. So the list that exemplified those who were unable to perform has always been a very important list. And so it's referred to all the time. If we would have named it something else 50 years ago, it would have been fine with the people. So it was just more of comfort as opposed to an indictment against a certain segment of our community. And I think that baseball is is expert at making the sport of baseball available to our fans, we are always trying to be better. And so expecting these kinds of changes, they, as you mentioned, they do take time. I am fortunate enough to be able to make suggestions at times to Commissioner Manfred on, on things that are happening in the world. What was interesting is that letter was written to both of us. And I think that that timing was fortuitous because we had sort of conditioned ourselves for this desire to improve there was no resistance. It was just timing. And part of that timing has to do with us being in good negotiation space with the players union. To me, of the five and a half years I've been back in baseball, this has been one of the most gratifying moments because I felt like everybody was thinking clearly and without bias. It was it was really about the work that we've done prior and the logic and the timeliness of, uh, of, of making the change that should have been made a long time ago. And it's interesting how some people thought that that we were being too progressive and why can't you just leave things the way they are? And that those are hard, 
you know, that's hard for me to understand that we, and people don't want to always try to get better. You obviously are in a very senior position where your voice is heard, and, and this is a value that's taken very seriously by, by Major League Baseball. So I have to you know, commend you and, and also the league for, for acting very quickly on this. But getting back to what you said before, because the DL has been around for so long, right. what type of negative feedback do, were you getting? I think it's more about people being afraid of where we're going to take the sport if we start changing things that they're just accustomed to and not the actual understanding that we were underserving a segment of our community and our population and it was time to change and stop doing that. So, and I appreciate, you know, the acknowledgement this commissioner has given me and many other people around him an opportunity to share our opinion. And make no mistake, we better come armed with information. But I felt that I made an argument that was clear and understood by the work that we've been doing. We earned this moment by other work that we had been doing. Just the reminder of how important baseball is to people. It's very humbling. I have a huge responsibility to the people that you know follow our sport. We have a chance to influence in a way that makes people feel better about themselves or might help them pick up a phone before they harm themselves. I can't think of anything more important. You know, last year, the New York Yankees uh, on an off day uh, responded to a young girl that was posted something about being bullied on Facebook. They did a beautiful little video in response to it. It provides hope. Well, I really think that you have a very exciting position at a time when things are changing very rapidly in our society. Yet we live in a time when uh, you mentioned mental health and more and more players are talking about, about mental health. Uh, the stress to perform not only on the field or on the stage, but with so many people providing instant feedback on social media and, and criticism has to be so difficult for a young player in their 20s or early 30s. And I know that the commissioner of the NBA has been very um, supportive of, of his players. I see this as an issue that probably will continue to grow, that players you know, will need support. The mental health initiative that we are working on right now is going to be uh, included in our all of our education outreach just to at the very onset make sure every player knows what resources are there and it's up to our op the leaders in our operations department the general managers and the assistant general managers directors of player personnel to communicate and socialize that it's not an indictment I remember when you don't when you're not sure you're going to be in the starting lineup or you start to play out all these uh, scenarios and and you create it's very stressful because you want to succeed. You're right there. And the way the players are analyzed now with the degree of it is so, the scale has grown so much. There's no other destination to go but to start to doubt or have uncertainty in your mind. So we need to, at the very least, talk about it because they want to be perfect too, you know, and every person has perfect in their hand. They can see what it is. And then when if we don't measure up, you start to create this situation where no one's going to feel as good as they can be or, or feel completely content or you know self-assured. It's such a pervasive issue in our society. The foundation does an award in my dad's memory, the Morton Ruderman Award in Inclusion. This year, we gave it to Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympian of all times and yet has talked about devastating mental health issues that he's had to deal with. He will influence people to say, if he's okay, I'm okay too. And just that can save a life. 
I really want to thank you, Billy, for joining me today. And, and thank you for the lead that you have played and the uh, Major League Baseball towards diversity and honoring diversity. Thank you for taking this lead on disability inclusion. And I think that you played a central part. And, and I really want to thank you for that. I, I think that you know, disability, which was often seen as a segregating issue, is now becoming empowering for a community and people are proud of their disability and are proud of being, you know, part of society. And I, I think that Major League Baseball, with your leadership uh, and, and the commissioner's leadership, will continue to help this community become empowered and move forward and become an, a, a very integral part of our society. So thank you so much for My your time pleasure. today. And thank you for all the work that you and your foundation do. Thank it's you. It's really inspiring. Thank you. All Inclusive is a production of the Ruderman Family Foundation. Our key mission is the full inclusion of people with disabilities in all aspects of society. You can find All Inclusive on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. To view the show notes, transcripts, or to learn more, go to rudermanfoundation.org slash all-inclusive. Have an idea for a podcast? Be sure to tweet at Jay Ruderman.